This edition of Walter Edgar's Journal contains a frank discussion of an incident of racially motivated violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me from the studios of Colorado Public Radio in Denver is Dr. William Gravely. He's a native of Pickens County, retired professor at the University of Denver, and he's produced a book, a recent book, entitled They Stole Him Out of Jail, Willie Earl, South Carolina's Last Lynching Victim. And with that somber introduction, Will, welcome to the journal. Thank you very much, Walter, and congratulations on your long commitment to South Carolina history and culture and your media presence uh, being a kind of public history exponent. Thank you, sir. Let's, let's just kind of start at the beginning. I'm going to ask you the question, why did you write the book? I have a suspicion because you're a native son of Pickens County, but I just thought I'd let you answer that question. Well, this I did not have a, a grand scheme in mind years ago when I first started exploring this. Uh, I had no memory of the event itself in terms of details when I was seven years old in Pickens because the Earl lynching abduction occurred out of the Pickens jail. But there were things swirling around me which may have influenced me in a kind of emotional way but I don't have any detailed memory, everything I know about what happened in 47 with my family and the sheriff lived next door and so forth, were told to me later, so I didn't have memory of that. But in 1978, the uh, minister in Pickens, a native South Carolinian, Holly Lynn, uh, had come to the Grace Methodist congregation and he mentioned to me as we visited just briefly the event. And that is my first recollection of anybody ever mentioning it to me. I was nearly 40 years old. And, and I didn't follow up on his brief mention until uh, sometime later. And uh, the project it began by, by curiosity. That is, I was turning to see first with my father and him and other people in Pickens, what what did they remember? And then I extended that process uh, to doing a number of oral histories in the 80s and uh, spent that time with you in Columbia in the spring of 85 uh, doing research, particularly in the press of South Carolina. And I didn't get around to a book proposal until I had retired uh, I retired early part because of uh, hearing loss. Uh, so I sent my first proposal in 2006 to the University of North Carolina Press, and that got put aside briefly by the editor. And then I did the same thing with University of South Carolina Press. And then in 2014, I submitted a much too long manuscript to them. So that's the journey of the book in the sense of process and, and completion. You said that the manuscript had to be cut back. This, this is a very detailed work of, of research. Many, many sources, not just you, people think about oral history, but you would expect in this day and time when uh, the news 24-7, when there's a trial or there's an investigation, everybody says, well, just go to the transcript and read it. There was no transcript of, this, of the trial of the individuals who committed this murder in yeah. Actually, it was in Green. We say Pickens and Greenville County, but it took place in both counties. So, right. Maybe we ought to walk our listeners through the story. Yeah. First okay. of all, let's let's identify the the two key individuals here. Okay. Who is Willie Earl, and who was Mr. Brown? Willie Earl was a 24 year old uh, native of Pickens County, born in an African American family. His mother in '47 was a widow. And he had six siblings, two of whom were uh, in the military at the time. Uh, Thomas Watson Brown was a native of Georgia. Uh, he and a number of the members of his family had migrated to Greenville in the 20s. And he had been a World War I veteran and had some disability. I, I think it may have been uh, 
a kind of nervous condition so that trying to work in the textile mill was too complicated for his system. And so he picked up, during World War II, he picked up driving cabs. And Earl, uh, the official story is that Earl hires his cab from Greenville on Saturday night, February 15th, 47, headed to Liberty to see his brother. And at some point, around Liberty, there was an altercation between the two men. The details of that are complicated and almost impossible to reconstruct. It appears that Earl had some bruise on his head, but he stabbed Brown, and Brown was left by the side of the road in Liberty, discovered later by a bachelor farmer walking back from town on that Saturday night, and he got authorities to transfer Brown to the Greenville Hospital, and he stayed in the hospital until his death midday on Monday, the 17th, and Earl was arrested Sunday midday out of a cab in Liberty while he was partying with some friends, taken to the Pickens Jail because it was a Sunday. He was not really interrogated, and before daybreak the next morning, about 18 hours after he'd been put in the jail, uh, he was abducted by this Greenville mob, officially counted at 31 men, uh, all but three of whom were taxicab driver colleagues of Brown. And they took him back across the county line into Greenville, had a brief start to begin to question him further, and then they moved it to another location for his actual uh, execution. Uh, and so that is how the lynching occurred. He dies immediately. Brown dies before noon on, on Monday morning. How did the local authorities immediately go to look for Willie Earl? Was there some record of him as a... Well, he had a prior history of three misdemeanors in Greenville. And the picture that occurs in the press at the time and on the cover of the book comes from uh, that in 1946. That's not related to the 47 story. Uh, those were charges of drunkenness and destruction of property. He mostly paid fines. I think he served a few days in jail. And those were, according to what the family and some of his neighbors growing up said to me in interviews, that was uncharacteristic of him to, be, to get in trouble. He, he suffered from a, a medical condition that uh, prohibited him from driving and from being in the service. Uh, at the time, he was working for the Greenville Sanitation Department and, and lived in Greenville and boarded there and would visit his family on weekends and the like. There was a brief interview with Brown by a Greenville policeman in the St. Francis Hospital that Saturday night. Uh, and they, they, had, they didn't identify much specific information. They talked maybe about the person who attacked him as being a large Negro and or was really not that big a person, 150 pounds, uh, but described some clothing and the like. But because of his condition, he didn't give a whole lot of specific information about the altercation that is the mystery, how that came about and so forth. Uh, the only accounts I have of the arrest is in the Anderson paper on Monday morning. There was an account in the Greenville paper on Monday morning, but for some reason that issue didn't end up in the morgue and in the microfilm. So except for talking to the guy who wrote it, I, I didn't have details about what was in that. Well, basically, we don't know how the police decided Willie Earl was the man, right? Well, the investigation on Sunday morning in Liberty claimed that he had walked to his mother's house from the site of the altercation, and they claimed that they tracked his footprints there. Uh, it had been a frosty morning, so that that might have aided that process if that was true in that area where it was. His mother later denied that his shoes were the ones that they had matched to the, to the prince and that he had any weapon and that he didn't have any blood on his clothes. And he actually told her that he'd come by bus. 
I don't think that was the case because I tracked the family that that worked at the bus station, and they had no connection to Willie Earl picking up a bus on uh, late on Saturday night to go to Liberty. Uh, and one of his co-workers also said that he saw him, uh, and he said he looked like hell. He was not in good condition at the point of when he picked the taxi up. So, but it is mysterious that that if he did not try to leave town, if he was the assailant, and there was no effort to hide clothes or or shoes or whatever involved. Uh, so that was uh, that was a complication in the in the process as well. Well, in the American South and in South Carolina in 1947, for a black man to have had an altercation with a white man to yeah. remain around wasn't very smart because yeah. all yeah. the white man had to do was say he did it and yeah. Yeah. the black man was going to jail. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the account from the official authorities came in a coroner's inquest on Tuesday night, the day after the lynching, in Pickens. And a Pickens deputy named Wayne Garrett, a man I remember growing up, and he gave the details. They did have a, a record of some of the injuries to Brown from the doctors in the hospital. He had died the previous day, midday, so this was a normal process for a coroner's inquest. But they did not invite the bachelor farmer, Hubert Newell, whom I met, uh, to come. They didn't invite Earl's mother to come and testify. So it, it was uh, a fairly tightly managed process. And it just repeated the, the kind of narrative that we've we've just gone over. So the, the coroner, without any indication, said Willie Earl did it. Well, the, yeah, the inquest uh, jurors decided that Willie Earl was his assailant. Okay. So Willie Earl is now in the Pickens County Jail. I've been there. I've seen the building. It's now the local historical society. Right. Uh, doesn't look like much of a jail now. And was it then? Well, it was pretty uh, tight. It looks like a kind of a miniature castle. <laughs> and uh, curiously, uh, when the, the New Yorker reporter from England, Rebecca West, came over to see it and to visit the jailer and his wife, she tried to sketch it in her manuscript notebook, tried to sketch how it looked. Uh, it was segregated, of course, and the family of the jailer lived upstairs. So the word is out in Greenville, where Brown was from, and particularly in the taxi cab driver community, right. um, that the man who killed our buddy is in the Pickens County Jail. Well, he hadn't died yet, but he was in diminished uh, capacity for all of Sunday, and they knew that he probably wasn't going to survive. And, and that effort to put together a response uh, occurred kind of informally at first in conversations throughout the afternoon and into the evening of uh, Sunday. It was a Liberty cab driver who had brought Earl to a location between Liberty and Easley, identifiable place now. It was a rock quarry then that had a community of houses around it for workers. And he was partying with these friends in uh, the cab driven by actually a cousin of my father's generation, a man I never remember meeting. But he went over to Greenville uh, uh, to talk to the cab drivers on Sunday evening and explained that Earl was in the jail and Actually, the jailer was his in-law, and that added to the desire for revenge. Because these cab companies had their dispatchers, they started to round up people who might be interested to go to Pickens and abduct Earl. Uh, and that went on for some time until about maybe 10 o'clock. And then the plan was to meet on the Pickens County side of the Saluda River, right outside of West Greenville, and go from there in a caravan of, of cars, all of them uh, cabs except one, driven by a businessman. That's the evolution of the plot itself. And they go to Pickens. Some of the key leaders said, we're not going to let anybody change our mind. 
Uh, one of them said, I want to be the only spokesman. Turns out that wasn't true. Other people had things to say. And the sources for all of this are confessional statements that the investigation got that first week with a combination of state constables sent by Governor Thurman, FBI agents, county sheriffs in Pickens and Greenville, and deputies and Greenville police. And that investigation was, was a very impressive uh, example of interagency coordination and cooperation. All right. Well, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Will Gravely about his book, They Stole Him Out of Jail, Willie Earl, South Carolina's Last Lynching Victim. All right, Will, we've got the plotters deciding what they're going to do. Now, there's a certain, I thought, interesting irony. The plotters are in a facility right across the street from the Greenville County Courthouse. Yes, it's available to, to be witnessed today because the old courthouse is now a business building and its entrance that you would have taken to go to the trial is now a very sophisticated bookstore. But right across West Court Street, it's more like an alley than a street, leading to the behind the courthouse, which is a parking area, was the Yellow Cab Office, which was the company that Brown was hired to, to work for. Uh, and that was attached to the parking garage for the famous Poinsett Hotel of Greenville, which has been redone and is still a very elegant uh, facility. And there's a new parking garage now, not the old one that was torn down and replaced. But the one in 47 was ran by uh, the same person who owned the cab company. And uh, so that the deputies on the first floor of the sheriff's department in the courthouse across the alley saw what was going on in this street group of people talking and planning and really didn't did nothing about it um, and there was actually one cab driver who alleged that they had encouraged uh, the uh, cab drivers to go to Pickens and identified that he was in the Pickens jail as it had already happened when Kerry Gravely told told them earlier in the evening. Um, and so there was a lost opportunity there to stop the lynching on the Greenville side. It creates a problem for the investigation because that's the only grounds by which the FBI could enter the case in those days. It was very minimal federal civil rights legislation. Uh, we now have, as a result of what happened this winter, we now have a federal anti-lynching law for the first time in history. But that was not the case then. What they were able to, to justify being involved was uh, to, to investigate if officers or jailers, uh, the term was under color of law, that is people who had law authority, did anything directly or indirectly to aid the lynching. So that meant in this case, the Pickens jailer, Ed Gilstrap, a man I do remember and to whom I'm also related distantly, would be vulnerable because he was rather passive. He made no effort really to say, you guys shouldn't be doing this. I need to call the sheriff and so forth. He said something like, I guess you guys know what you're doing. And in Greenville, the two deputies, they had authority in South Carolina law code to look out for lynching. It's, it's mentioned in the text of the code. So uh, they were vulnerable to charges. And uh, it turned out, however, that the FBI really ended up assisting in the interviews and interrogation much more than they focused on these uh, three men. And there was the possibility of one Greenville City policeman who had prior knowledge of the lynching. Okay. All right. Well, let's back up a minute okay. because we're, we're getting it in the investigation, and at this point, Willie Earl has not been abducted and yeah. killed. Okay. So the folks are there, the taxi cab drivers. They do have the caravan. They drive to Pickens, and the jailer opens the door. They take Willie Earl out. They stop in two different locations before they cross the county line back into Greenville, and Which, stopped briefly. Yeah. And then at the spot in Greenville County, the second stop, they beat him, they stab him, they shoot him, they actually shoot him in the head with a shotgun. Right. 
and leave him dead. How does law enforcement find out that there has been something going on? Who reports to whom about? Yeah, uh, there were two anonymous calls, one to Sullivan's uh, mortuary, uh, an African-American business in Greenville, and one to the Greenville Piedmont, the afternoon paper, so that the staff was already in the office about 7 o'clock. And so those are the two sources. But behind the scenes, the two two deputy sheriffs who were on duty, they had been warned by one cab driver that this might happen, a man that they didn't take seriously because he was uh, intoxicated. And the same man came back later and said it happened so that they had a separate source from the phone calls. But the people from the Piedmont newspaper went immediately to over to the cab company and the sheriff's office and got in the middle of the conversations. And from that started this uh, very impressive investigation. Arch, you, you say Im- impressive because this is immediate post-World War II America. Jim Crow was still the law of the land, very much, yes. in, very much enforced. South Carolina's General Assembly has just had a, a session uh, when Olin D. Johnson was was governor. Uh, they called it the Kill Billies because they killed 40 or 50 laws. They took them off the books to try to keep the white primary a private club. And we've had, I should mention, the horrible incident in Batesburg, South yes. Carolina, yes. Uh, where the young Army veteran was blinded uh, by the local police chief. And now we're having an investigation that become something of a national story. Yes, and and local as well in the sense that the people at uh, Piedmont immediately called Governor Thurman, and then he ordered the uh, constabulary to send agents locally and then from Columbia. So there were four different levels of law enforcement involved. Uh, And on the FBI side, they got word in Washington about it by late morning, and called the federal attorney for the Western District and went over the details, and he said, well, we think this is a case that the the, uh, Bureau has authority to inquire about. Uh, It appears that the jailer made no effort to protect her and so forth. So um, that's how those forces came together. And the federal justice department may have reacted more quickly because President Truman has been really hot ever since Isaac Woodard, the that's right, the Isaac right. Woodard case in Batesburg. That's right. Offended that a veteran would be treated uh, this way, he was returning from Camp Gordon on his way to meet his wife, and uh, uh, the tri- there was a federal trial, but it was unsuccessful. But that leads in to the way in which the FBI handled the case in Greenville. Uh, its, its real contribution were the investigations. They put aside any focus on the Pickens jailer and the Greenville deputies, in part because the state was willing to have a trial. So it wouldn't have to be a federal case. And they thought the chances for success were better because it would be a state matter, not a federal matter. And you mention in, in the book, and uh, Rebecca West, who wrote a wonderful article called Opera in Greenville for the New Yorker about the trial. Everyone was amazed that the governor of South Carolina went public and said, this is a violation of the law. The The perpetrators need to be yes. taken to account for, for what they yeah. have done for their crimes. And that just didn't happen in the American South. That's right. Or actually, that's right. in America, much period. Generally, yeah, that's right. Lynchon was uh, really... Uh, Part of our amnesia about it is very little efforts to get convictions, even when there were trials. Yeah, Thurman was quite uh, public. He said the constable should stay on the case until they solved it. He had already given an anti-lynching statement uh, some uh, months earlier. I think it was in the 46 campaign for governor uh, when he was in Greenville. So it was consistent with his... He had been a, a district judge, a circuit judge, and so it was consistent with his law and order orientation. And 
he took some flack for that, and it's, you look at his correspondence, you'll see some of of the criticism that was given by people who said he should have stayed out of it. Of course, he and other state officials were well aware of the political dynamic in terms of who's going to step on whose toes, the FBI, the state, yeah. the yeah. state police, the yeah. Sheriff's Association, yeah. because the Sheriff's Association had gotten really upset in the Isaac Woodard case That's that right. the FBI got involved. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and the sheriff of Greenville County is an officer in the State Sheriff's Association. This, yeah. this gets a real complicated story about Yeah, yeah it is. It is, exactly. Uh, but it, the, the Bureau didn't have a lot of success in those days and uh, on, on cases like this. There's one in Tennessee. There was one in 46 in Georgia. Uh, and then there was a case that came out of Florida. All of these focusing on law officers' connection to lynchings where the Supreme Court ended up saying you had to prove intent, not just the action or the inaction, but the intent. And that complicated the legal issues involved. Okay. So the investigation's going on, and they've identified 31 individuals, right? Right. Okay. You want to talk about them for a minute, who they were? Yeah. yeah, All of them are cab drivers except three. Two were businessmen. One was from a fairly prominent family, the Marchers, connected to a textile mill business in town. Uh, the other uh, non-cab driver was the part owner of a uh, lunch stand. The other men came from, I think it was five different cab companies. There was one cab company that didn't have anybody involved because the owner had said, if you get involved, I'm going to fire you. And there were a couple of, of African-American companies that, that served a small business, but not, not very much. And the cab driver community at this time was large, I think, in part because men coming back from service would pick up part-time uh, driving at night and weekends and so forth. For or I believe there were 345 cab licenses for 72 cabs in Greenville at this time, it's a huge number. And there had been a history of tensions between the cab driver community and the city police and the city government about regulations. They tried to fingerprint men and to make sure people with felonies weren't involved. They weren't always successful with that, but that was an effort. So there were tensions back and forth uh, about that. Uh, these men's pictures, except for one of the businessmen who was already out of town, were in the Greenville News uh, morning paper on Saturday the, the uh, 22nd, the, the day after the investigation had identified them. That was a remarkable thing to have happened as well in terms of Thurman's stand in this uh, exposure. And it ties into the way that the chief prosecutor and later congressman Robert Ashmore saw the case. So there was a kind of behind-the-scenes exposure of these men, uh, even though the final results won't show that. Okay, let's do pick it up now. They're, they've been identified. They're all arrested on state charges, correct? Right. Do they try to figure out whether they want to try it in Pickens County or Greenville County? Well, I think the district, uh, the circuit district was the same. The court week in Pickens started that week, February 15th, and it was a man named Judge Green in charge. Uh, Ashmore had actually come to Pickens on Friday to prepare for that. He comes back Monday morning, and right down the hill from the courthouse, he has a lynching on his hand in, in the jail. He had to try some cases. The judge gave him a chance to speed up some and defer some so that he was free by Wednesday of that week, and he went to Columbia to confer with Governor Thurman and with State Attorney General John Daniel, who was a Greenville native. And I don't have notes of that meeting. Uh, I don't have Ashmore's account of that meeting, even though I talked with him twice. Uh, and I, So I didn't discover some of those details until later, but uh, clearly there was some strategizing going on. Ashmore stayed overnight and came back the next day. So that I think you had three lawyers 
uh, with good knowledge of the state's system and law and judges and so forth, talking about how this should be handled. Uh, and it was a pretty uh, daunting task. You know, here you've got a lynching, hadn't had one in Greenville County in 14 years, in Pickens County in 35 years. You've got political chaos going over in the neighboring state of Georgia with three people claiming to be the governor. And there have been these racial tensions there and in Tennessee uh, and in Florida and in Louisiana so that the, the region is kind of on edge. So they, they were challenged to face this with some kind of way to uphold the law, but knowing that they had a, a huge uh, job in front of them to convict 31 people for the death of one person. How do you figure out who did it? How did, how did Ashmore address that problem? Well, having 26 of the 31 men gave confessions, and those would be the documents on which Ashmore depended for the coroner's inquest in Greenville and later for the jury trial in May uh, so that uh, those are the documents that give the details. Uh, The problem with that is that 26 varying accounts are not going to harmonize very easily. So it was a huge task for the coroner's jury to decide on, you know, one paragraph or two, these are the facts of the case and these are the people to be identified. You had contrasting stories in those confessions. You had people mentioned who were not identified as part of the mob. Uh, You even had one argument that somebody else had shot Earl other than the person that most other people said had shot Earl. And if you look really close at the confessions, you'll see, except for saying they were involved, there were no self-incriminating statements about what the giver of the confession said and did, only what he saw other people say and do. And that will be a very vulnerable piece of the state's problem in trying to use the confessions to convict the men at the trial. Didn't Mr. Ashmore then decide, since they were all involved in a capital offense, they were all equally guilty whether they pulled the trigger or not? Right. He used this axiom, the hand of one is the hand of all. And that's an appropriate way to understand conspiracy. When you get down to the details about who did the abusing and the killing, or you get down to the details of accessory before or accessory after the fact of murder, it's more difficult to separate certain people from other people. So that having four charges and and charging all with those four counts uh, was also kind of overkill in the sense of making discrete distinctions. And uh, as the case moved on into court, Right away, the defense team says, we want you, judge, to rule on the authenticity of the confessions and on whether they are to be treated only as self-referential, the person who's giving the statement, or could they be considered witness statements, which we as the defense oppose. And they got that ruling in the trial, the jury trial, so that Functionally, for the rest of the jury trial, which involved presenting these confessions, functionally, the only charge left was conspiracy. And he said, we could keep that charge uh, alive, but you have to have other confirming evidence than just these texts. Uh, So that was a real blow, uh, but it was set up by the problems that went right back to that investigation of the first week. Okay. The, the lynching, and and I think just for our listeners, we need to remind them that lynching does not necessarily mean hanging. It's That's right. murder by mob. Yeah, yeah. All right. It happens in February. The trial is in May, uh, and it is a national sensation. Sure. The media blitz was amazing. There were two movie tone uh, efforts to do newsreel, one from London and one from New York. And because the judge wouldn't let them inside the court, all they could do was interview outside. But there were five New York publications 
There was the AP, UP, INS, and the ANP, something I didn't know, the American Negro Press Wire Services, the four wire services. There's a Chicago Tribune, Time, Life, Newsweek, three African-American weeklies, and one uh, reporter for that also gave stories for the one black newspaper that had a daily in, in Atlanta, uh, the Atlanta Daily World. And then CBS Radio came down. So uh, they had to add wire service machines in the back of the courthouse to keep up with all the stuff coming out being sent to these various places. And it was picked up in Russia, picked up in England, picked up in Canada, picked up in Australia. So it was an international event in that sense. And, of course, the most famous reporter there was Rebecca West uh, for The New Yorker. She was a native of Great Britain. Her article opera in Greenville became an international sensation. And let's let's take a few minutes out and talk about her article because that article really colored later interpretations and misinterpretations yeah. of what right. happened. Right, exactly. Well, West had just come from Nuremberg, and she was uh, developing a, a kind of distinct court reporter journalism uh, where her editor joked and said, well, the judge and the jury try the defendants, and then you try everybody else in aftermath evaluations. Uh, she had been ill a good bit of the time since she came. She actually arrived in New York on the very days of Earl and Brown's death, but spent much of the late winter uh, into the spring ill. And, and in fact, she was so ill that uh, her editor wouldn't let her come down to Greenville to look at the first week of the trial. So she finally begged him, and she came on the weekend break. The court let out midday on Saturday, and she came down overnight from New York on the train on Sunday. She was staying in the Poinsett Hotel, where all the white reporters were staying, and actually where the jury was kept uh, by the bailiff. And uh, she went over to the First Baptist Church on Sunday night and was impressed by everybody singing so lustily, even though it was hot. And she also heard that kind of music in the black section of town where she wandered through there. So that she she got the title of the essay from the first day. You know, Greenville has opera. Everybody sings. <laughs> that was her view. So, But the next day, she is in court and hears the judge rule on defense motions which had been made on Saturday before court adjourned. And all of those were favorable to the defense. He released, I think it was three of the men who did not give confessions and reduced charges about uh, against several others. Uh, and then court was adjourned to prepare for Tuesday's summations. Uh, but Monday afternoon, West goes to Pickens, as I mentioned earlier, to see the jail. Uh, during the summations, you have competition among very well-trained lawyers and orators. Let's tell our folks who they are. We, we know Robert Ashmore, who later becomes Congressman right. Ashmore. Uh, but who are the defense lawyers besides Tom Wofford? Well, the, the lead defense attorney was a very brilliant Harvard-trained lawyer, Tom Wofford. There had been competition between Wofford and Ashmore politically, going back to the 30s when Ashmore was first elected solicitor. On the state side, uh, Thurman had, and Daniel had appointed a special state prosecutor who had a very impressive record of winning all but three or 384 cases. His name's Sam Watt from Spartanburg. And he comes in on the case, but it's after all that first week has occurred. The other three defense lawyers were a state representative and later state uh, senator, Bradley Mora, and he was defending his cousin, uh, and that's the only role he played. Ben Bolt was a kind of folksy attorney with a lot of interest in details, but the real unusual person in the defense team was John Bolt Culbertson because well, he— Hold on, wait, wait a minute. I thought he was basically a civil rights lawyer. Labor he, was, he, he was a labor and civil rights lawyer, and he first turned down uh, two wives who came to him from defendants 
But then the uh, head of the CIO union in, I think it was Bonnegan Mill in Greenville, begged him to take it on because he had two sons-in-laws in in, uh, the Lynch Party. So uh, Culbertson comes aboard unexpectedly, uh, and he doesn't take much. Walford really runs the table during the, the, the court that first week. Most of the attention to the other three comes in the, in the summation stage on Tuesday. But Culbertson and Walford really had no compunction about exposing their racist arguments. Culbertson said something like, Willie Earl is dead and I wish more like him were dead. So he really embarrassed himself and he later had to confess that he was really out of line for this. He apologized and won his reputation back because for the rest of his life, he was probably the most outspoken white civil rights activist in South Carolina. But back to 1947, he wasn't. Yeah. All right, well, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Will Gravely about his book, They Stole Him Out of Jail, Willie Earl, South Carolina's Last Lynching Victim. All right, Will, so the trial, it goes to the jury. The jury is out for six hours, and that in itself is a little bit amazing. But it comes back in and gives its verdict. Well, yeah, the courtroom is crowded again. It had been crowded all that first week. And in South Carolina law, you're allowed to have your family with you. So there were wives, girlfriends, children uh, available. And so people waited because Judge Martin took a long time to have dinner that night. And so it didn't reconvene until about 10 o'clock. And uh, the jury came back in. And the clerk of court uh, read the charges and not guilty. Uh, I think it was 92 times because you applied each of these charges against each person, and there were four of those. There were 28 actually left under trial on the final day. And the court adjourns. Martin does not thank the jury. In fact, they said his face flushed. Uh, I think behind the scenes, he hoped that the conspiracy charge might might hold up because it had a fairly minimal sentence, and the confessions did indicate that uh, I, you know, I was in on this, each person saying, but that didn't hold up uh, with the jury. They are acquitted. That in itself upsets a lot of folks. Rebecca West in uh, her opera in Greenville's not very kind to Mr. Ashmore. She did not understand something that you mentioned earlier. When the Greenville News published the photographs and the names of these individuals, lynchings in the South were traditionally clandestine. Yeah, that's what some of the the uh, columnists observed afterwards, that even though you didn't get uh, convictions, exposure was precisely what lynchers did not want. So to have this strategy, uh, and on top of that, Ashmore has them in jail from, some of them in jail from Tuesday till the following Monday when they're arraigned. They're in jail again during the trial. And in his interviews with me, he was not, he said, I didn't think I could get 31 men convicted for the death of one man. And behind that is a long history, not only in South Carolina, but in the South, that there could be arrests and trials of lynchers, but there's virtually no history of convictions, very small percentage. In fact, one of the AP writers who covered the trial went to Tuskegee, where the lynching records were, and did a a survey of this to see, can courts convict lynchers? And it was 97 percent, I think he said, were failures. Well, you quote Colonel Wyndham Manning uh, had written a letter to the editor, and published in the Columbia State. And I want to quote some of what. Yeah. Uh, he, it was yeah. a 500-word letter. That's, they won't take that, that long a letter to the editor anymore. It's got to be shorter. <laughs> um, he said, in pointing out the obvious nature of the Jim Crow system, he said, law enforcement in Pickens County as well as in South Carolina is entirely in the hands of white people. Our laws are enacted by a white legislature. Our prosecuting officials, our judges, and our juries are white. The pardoning power is in the hands of a governor. Can anyone doubt, then, that the accused, a Negro, would have been adequately punished if he were guilty? Yeah. 
that's pretty powerful. He was a public official. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Came from a very distinguished family. I think his father and his grandfather, maybe both of them, had been governors. Correct. Uh, in any event, yeah, you had that sentiment. It, it um, uh, I'm sure, was held by a lot of people who regretted the outcome. Uh, but it was, I don't think, all that much a surprise, uh, except that the general public, especially nationally, could not understand if you had confessions why you didn't have uh, convictions. Okay. All right, Will, let's, in, in, in summing things up, the, one of the first things you mentioned, you were seven when this happened in, uh, yes. you were in living in Pickens. And as you started your research back in the 1980s, did you find much consciousness? Did people remember it other than participants? I mean, you did, you did interview Culbertson and, and Congressman Ashmore, but what about the general public? Was there— Well, I, I had incredible luck on the first effort to do oral histories. I had no training in that. I did have encouragement from a Duke historian uh, earlier in 1982, and I did stop by and talk to the people— at the Memphis State uh, University Oral History Program when I was there for a conference giving a paper on another subject. Uh, but So I went out sort of naively with my little cassette tape recorder. But on that first visit, not only did I find Ashmore and um, Culbertson, I found Willie Earl's mother. I found the, the bachelor farmer who found Brown by the side of the road. I found a Greenville club woman who took her child, her infant child, to the to the trial every day. She had graduated in social work, a young woman, young married woman. I found two journalists. I found two black activists from Greenville who were at that time part of the Progressive Democratic Party of South Carolina. Okay. Right. okay. What, what I'm really trying to get at is the, mem- the community memory about You found some individuals, but um, you mentioned you grew up, and it wasn't until you were an adult that you learned about it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But um, there had been retrospectives in the Greenville paper 15 years later and 25 years later. And the man who wrote the 25 years later one was helpful in guiding me to uh, the men I was just referring to who helped me find Tessie Earle. Uh, uh, I can't argue that this is what I discovered was a a total sample of a community. I mean, in 1982, a lot of people I would have liked to have talked to uh, involved in the case at one level or another were were not around. They had died. Uh, And uh, we did make an effort. We went twice to flea markets in Pickens and and set up and ask people who had memories to come by and identify themselves, and we'd interview them. We did the same thing on radio and television in Greenville, and and we had we actually had some uh, second generation of the lynchers, the children of lynchers, uh, to talk uh, with us. That was very valuable. All right, all right, uh, all right, let me just stop you there. What about you talked to the child of a lyncher? Did they, when they were talking about their their father's participation, was you know, were they proud of Daddy? Were they embarrassed of Daddy? Well, uh, you had uh, also talked to one uh, widow. Uh, and she called me. Uh, one of my disappointments in the case is that I never earned enough trust with the still living defendants to have any significant luck speaking to them. But one of the daughters of one of the leaders described to me her experience of being a kind of a middle schooler, being teased by her classmates about having a father who was a lyncher, and she developed early on migraine headaches, so that was very distressing to her. And he would always say to her, I'm going to take you out and show you where we kill Willie, but I didn't touch him, he would always say. Uh, but she, uh, as a good daughter, uh, brought him back from Arizona where he had been in a fire uh, for his last days and buried him. So she kept uh, family and uh, parental uh, allegiance as part of that. But she's the one who also told me, I often, she just stopped in the middle of saying something. I always wondered what it would have been like to have been Willie Earl's mother. And I had a similar case of a kind of a crossover of sentiment 
when uh, one of the men who worked in the sanitation department with Earl, Elvin Whiteside, he says, you know, that white cab driver wanted to live as much as anybody. So I had people who, illustrations at least, of people whose reflections and musing about this history uh, created uh, contrasting emotions and feelings. And I was delighted that they were willing to share that with me. Okay. Well, I hate to do this, but Alfred's given me the wind-up sign. <laughs> and so Will Gravely, the author of They Stole Him Out of Jail, Willie Earle, South Carolina's Last Lynching Victim, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and usually I say, I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I don't think that's the appropriate term to use. I will say, I hope you learned something from today's journal. Will Gravely, native of Pickens County, grew up not really aware that a young black man, Willie Earle, had been abducted from the Pickens County Jail in 1947 by a mob of 31 men from Greenville, carried across the Greenville County line where he was lynched, the term used then, beaten, stabbed, and shot. The subsequent trial made the news not just in South Carolina, but nationally and internationally. The fact that these 31 men were prosecuted vigorously, publicly named, and in essence shamed, marked a turning point in South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.